This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Covered in Pet Hair, a boozy web show for pet lovers on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Isabel alvarez Arada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a dog trainer that takes a nerdy approach to canine cognition. I'll tell you all about her and introduce you as soon as we come back from these messages from our sponsors. Does your pet's breath leave a bit or a lot to be desired? You can give your pet the gift of sweeter breath and you'll get sweeter kisses with Probiora Pet. That breath is the result of harmful bacteria which lives in your pet's mouth. And that harmful bacteria can lead to serious health problems. The solution is to crowd out that bad bacteria with positive bacteria. All it takes is one scoop a day of Probiora Pet mixed into their food to replenish the good bacteria. That's it. This all-natural, no-taste, no-odor powder is the only dental care probiotic for pets which delivers beneficial bacteria which supports tooth and gum health and crowds out the bad. A healthy body starts with a healthy mouth, and Probiora Pet is the best way to give your pet a healthy mouth. And our listeners get a 10% discount using PLR10 at checkout. To purchase, go to probiorahealth.com. That's probiorahealth.com. And use code PLR10 at checkout for 10% off. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel alvarez Rada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a pet parent, a dog trainer. She's an entrepreneur, a foodie, and a cocktail connoisseur. She's a fitness fanatic that was born and raised in Riverside County, California, where she still resides. She's fiancé to Tyler, dogma to a Dalmatian by the name of Max. She started working in the pet care industry at the very young age of 11. And she's the dog trainer behind the Dog Liaison, where she coaches dog parents to help improve the mental health of our dogs. Her name is Jenna Romano. Welcome, Jenna. It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Isabel. I'm really excited. And thank you for that lovely welcome. That was a really great intro. Oh, absolutely. I have to say all the things that make you special. And I want to get into more about how you started in the pet industry at 11. But before I do that, I want to introduce our drinking game today. Anytime you hear this word, audience. The secret word is nerd. Make sure you take a drink of whatever you're enjoying, but please be sure you're over 21 to participate in the United States. Never drink and drive wherever you are and always drink responsibly. What are you drinking tonight, Jenna? So I'm really boring right now. I I know, I know, please don't hate me, but I don't hate you. (laughs) I'm only drinking water. She's having water. Yes. I know I'm boring. I'm sorry. If it was a cocktail connoisseur that does not drink on Wednesdays. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When we go out on a Saturday night, I am going to drink a Long Island. I will probably have two Long Islands. I'm one of the rare breeds that enjoy Long Islands. And yes, I can throw them back. I think that they taste great and you get a lot of bang for your buck in a Long Island, but I can have that's maybe what I'm one. Saying. Okay. Maybe that's, one. that's exactly why I started drinking Long Islands is I was, <laughs> you know, when you're poor, you're like, well, how much can I get for 12 bucks? And that was why I started going with Long Islands because it was, gave you the most bang for your buck. And now at this point, I'm a little desensitized to them. And Ooh. so now when Tyler and I go out, he, he knows if Jenna has Long Islands on the table, he's driving. <laughs> I'm not going to be Jenna driving. That is a good rule for anybody with a Long Island on the table. The last time that I had a Long Island iced tea, I learned what an Irish goodbye is. Yes. Because I got in a cab and went home without saying goodbye to anybody because I was so drunk that I just could not stay at the, this was years ago, but that's the last time I had a Long Island iced tea. Okay. (laughs) Well, we will get a Long Island in you the next time that we're out. It's going down. It's going to happen. And I have a really great place, uh, about 
like mm, at shout out to heroes in riverside there's a place called heroes and they they know how to make a drink so we'll be there <laughs> Ooh, i would love i would love to try that absolutely well i'm having a very classic moscow mule today because i was craving a little bit of the ginger beer i saw in my fridge so cheers no matter what you're drinking it's great to have you on the show cheers. thank you so much and here's my water cheers i appreciate cheers. it i'm excited she's having smart water because she's nerdy like that <laughs> <laughs> the worst part okay can we digress for a second yes the worst part is that i actually just refill the same bottle over and over and over again <laughs> but i like this bottle and i literally will go to the store just for like the the texture of the plastic i know that's ridiculous but i just like refill it and like i get my two weeks worth out of it and then i go buy another one Nice. Well, I actually am kind of partial. I'm not nerdy. I don't nerd out about a lot of things, to be honest with you, maybe only cocktails, but I do love smart water. If there is smart water anywhere, I'm choosing that over most other waters for some reason. Um, I like the electrolyte aspect of it. I feel like I'm getting more bang for my buck there too. I don't know. Maybe exactly. I'm crazy. <laughs> well, right. I have to say if there's one thing to be nerdy about, it's alcohol. So I'm here for it. I, oh, I oh. 10 out of 10. Yes, you know, isn't there like that history of booze show on like History Channel? Oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Yes, I, that I do nerd out over. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, I need to get into you and how you became the expert on generalized anxiety in dogs, men canine mental health, a term that, to be honest with you, I haven't heard until I discovered you. So mm. before we get into that aspect of my question, I'm going to play a game with you. It's That's called good. Jenna's journey. I'm here for it. It's all about how you came to be the dog trainer that you are today. Are you ready to play? I love it. I'm here for the alliteration. There's nothing that I <laughs> love more than a good J alliteration. So let's do Always. it. Always. I love alliteration. All right. <laughs> okay. So the first question, have you always been nerdy? Ooh, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. I always loved the process of learning. I was not always a good student, if that makes sense. So if I didn't understand how the assignment was going to better my learning, I wouldn't do the assignment. Ooh, she was a rebellious nerd. I would be a rebellious nerd, yes. And I, I would love to nerd out on things that I deemed important. Right. Yes. But if it wasn't in the list of things that I thought was relevant or important, I skipped it. I'm kind so of I... like that too. I totally hear that. And I say nerdy in a very good way. We all know that the nerds are the most successful people usually. So when I Amen. say nerdy, I'm not saying that in a negative or like hateful way. I'm saying it in like, it's cool to nerd out about things that you love. Absolutely agree. Let's embrace the nerd. And I am welcoming all of my fellow nerds into the culture. It's absolutely it's good to be here. Yes, absolutely. And uh, now that I, I'm thinking of taking on my next step in the industry, I actually want to become a dog trainer certified by Karen Pryor Academy. I am hoping to be just as nerdy as you about all the science that goes into this, hopefully, because uh, studying wasn't always my strong suit either. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm here for it. Let's let's get our nerd on. Yes. Okay. So you started working with dogs at age 11. In mm -hmm. what capacity exactly? So I actually grew up showing dogs and Ooh. I've had Dalmatians my whole life. I grew up showing Dalmatians and my parents actually showed dogs before my brother and I were born. And basically my brother's older than I am. So basically for those say 13, 14 years, they just put off showing dogs because they were raising two children. And then literally when I turned 11, my parents were like, we're thinking about getting another dog to show. And I was like, tell me more about this. I'm intrigued. <laughs> and it actually all started because I was not a very social child and I had a lot of social anxiety, but I really gravitated towards animals. We had animals even at that time. And I was much more likely to engage in conversation with strangers if it was around animals. And so, yeah, my parents were definitely going to put me in some sort of capacity working with animals. And that's how I ended up showing dogs. And I showed dogs from the time I was 11 to 18. And yeah, that's how I started in that world. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so cool. My oldest is four. So like in like no time at all, like the thought of him being able to be mature enough to show dogs is pretty impressive. Like now that I'm a parent, like I can really see 
like 11 is quite young, but that's really impressive that you were so into it. What inspired you after that experience to become a dog trainer specifically? So when I graduated high school and went to college, I actually thought I wanted to, I mean, I did start studying film studies and I thought I wanted to be a screenwriter. And, you know, I really love the analyzing of being, of being a storyteller. I really love that process. But one of the things that I found in school was I just got very, it felt very redundant and there wasn't enough novelty. And one of the things that I started doing while I was going through college was actually teaching other people how to train their dogs. And I did it initially, in all honesty, I did it initially because I needed money and I was a college student and that's what you need. Right. And so it started off just sort of a word of mouth thing. And then someone was like, Hey, you should work at Petco. And I was like, okay, I could take a full-time job at Petco. That's fine. And while I was working at Petco, again, I was still going to college for film studies. I was like, you know, this whole dog behavior thing, not only am I pretty good at it, but I really enjoy it. It lights me up and I really grab it. It was not as redundant as going to school and and sort of that capacity. So I really loved the novelty and every single dog was a different experience for me. And then from Petco, they ended up making me their senior trainer or whatever at the time. And that was when I was like, you know, this could actually like as weird as it sounds now, because I've grown so much further past just what Petco's education has given me. But at the time I was, that was sort of my first moment, which is like, you could actually make a career out of this. This isn't just (laughs) like a hobby that you do to get through college. And I really gravitated towards the emotional capacity and treating the dog's emotional mental health, not just what was seen externally, but was actually happening internally. And that was when I realized, oh, there's like a whole science dedicated to canine cognition. Like who knew? And that was (laughs) what took it from there. That is awesome. So how old were you when you took your first paid client? My first paid client, I was probably 18. I was 18, not probably. But when I started working at Petco, I was 20 or 21. And then uh, my first in-person client, I was 24, 25. It was like my first like in the home and I'm almost 28 now. Wow. So you've been in this for at least 10 years professionally, career-wise. That's awesome. Yeah. And you didn't have to say your age, but okay. I figured I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> that's where, that's where I, I had kind of put you really funny. Uh, I had another guest in season one who also started her career really young. She was training service dogs mm-hmm. with her parents. And then she ended up at Petco in yep. their training program. And last year, she just very recently just started her um, business. So she's actually in Oregon, I think Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah, you guys kind of had a similar background. I'm always fascinated when people start so young in the industry because I started at 28. Okay. Next question. When did you discover your passion for anxious dogs specifically? Okay. So that's a great question because there's a little bit of a complex answer. I think I intuitively realized that I was gravitating towards sensitive kids and since I say kids, but dogs, I was gravitating towards them right out of the get-go working at Petco. It's, I mean, they were my favorites is the dogs that just were working through some, a little bit more emotional um, distress. And they just felt, I felt like I could foster a stronger relationship with them. And then there was definitely a very pivotal moment. I was driving to a client and this client wasn't even like their dog wasn't even that anxious to be honest. I mean, the dog was experiencing reactivity, but he wasn't as severe as like some of the other anxious kids I had worked with, but I was driving up their hill and I started really connecting the dogs between that dog's mental health and that dog's perspective with some of the people in my life who are also challenging or facing some mental health challenges, depression and anxiety and um, other emotional mental health disorders. So I really started kind of connecting the dots. And that was really what led me. I have a person I've talked about this on my channel, but I have a person in my life is my brother um, who has some mental health disorders. And I had always spent most of my life, like I said, I was a kid. I, uh, I didn't connect well with humans. I did much better connecting with animals than I did with humans. And so it took me a very long time to really be able to process and understand what my 
brother's experience in the world was. But dogs were the thing that really made that click. One of the things that I found with having conversations with other trainers is that a lot of times they use their experiences with humans to be able to understand dogs. For me, it's always been the reverse. I use my understanding of dogs to be able to understand humans. So I use the principles that come intuitively to me about dogs. And I say, oh, I get this now because that's what my human friends are working through. So all that to say, when I was going up this hill, I started really connecting these dots between these anxiety disorders and this mental health. I really think of it as an epidemic um, in canines that is just being completely overlooked. And we just kind of discount it as, well, they're barking and that's their problem. And we're not actually treating the mental health capacity of it. And that really was the turning point for me where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to refocus all of my energy into simply canine mental health, but this is where I need to be spending the rest of my life. That is amazing. When did you start your YouTube channel? Like almost two years to the day of today. So that would have been November, 2019. Wow. You're doing awesome. You have tons of followers. You're on there every week with an awesome content. Really, truly hats off to you because I love your channel. What accomplishment in the past 10 years that you've been doing this professionally are you most proud of? What a great question. I think honestly, and this is probably a little bit cheesy, but I mean it with with 100% seriousness is what you said at the very beginning when we were talking, which is I've never really heard of anyone talk about canine mental health until I met you, Jenna. That is exactly what I'm most proud of because it wasn't something that people were talking about. It wasn't a phrase that was being used. And there were other people in the industry that definitely proliferated that phrase in the last two years, but it wasn't being talked about nearly as much until some of my followers ended up using it in their language. We, I think, undermine the significance of our canine mental health. And it's just not a concept that we understand. In fact, when I very first started my channel and my business, and I said, you know, my, my brand thesis in life is to enhance dogs, mental health. When I started using that, I went to a friend who's a business mentor of mine and they're far older than us. Let's say they're in their sixties. And when I told him that this was what I wanted to, to do, he literally told me like, it sounds like propaganda. It sounds like a marketing ploy. And he meant it like in all seriousness, he wasn't trying mm-hmm. to be a jerk about it, but that was really the moment that I was like, well, screw it. I need to make it not propaganda. This needs to be an actual thing that we appreciate the significance of. This is not just me using floppy language. This is a serious problem that we're overlooking. So yeah, yeah, that that is, that's I- what I'm most proud of. <laughs> That is, I mean, it's true. I'm not just, you know, like patting you on the back needlessly. I obviously have people on my show that I admire and I respect, but the truth is I learn a lot from my guests. And when I started researching you, that's what I learned. And there's still a stigma with mental health when it comes to humans. So of course there's going to be a stigma when you say canine mental health, and I can see where your mentors coming from until you have a dog with anxiety or some kind of disorder, then you start saying, okay, well, this is very real in my day to day. It might not be in somebody who's never, who's had like an easy dog. Who's always like, well, adaptive dog. So how much do you think our mental health affects our canine mental health? What a great question. That's a fantastic question. I think there are a couple lenses to look through this. The first is if you If your dog is experiencing a higher level of stress, their limitations are going to immediately limit your capabilities, which is to say, if your dog, every single time they walk out your, your, their front door is experiencing trauma, you're not going to continue walking out your front door with your dog because you're not going to continue putting them in trauma. Well, what does that mean for you? That means you're not going out your front door. And then if you let add into that, well, maybe my dog also has separation anxiety. Well, now that means not only can you not walk out your front door with your dog, but you also can't even walk out your front door without your dog because you can't leave your dog alone or else they're going to go through trauma. Right. So some of that is we're affecting the human's mental health literally just by means of keeping our own dogs safe. It's putting us in limitations, which is preventing us from being able to live our life. Mm -hmm. And that obviously is going to affect our mental health. The other lens that you can look through this is that we know through studies that there is a correlation between cortisol. So like we know this is especially true, at least in that one study, this was true for female humans with female dogs. So female dogs, cortisols will go up when female 
humans' cortisol would go up. And there was a correlation there. So we do know that the dogs are able to smell our pheromones. And when our stress is higher, our pheromones are going to emit a different smell than they would if our stress was reasonable, right? The truth of the matter is that our stress and our pheromones, I can see in your face, you're just like, whoa, fine, what? <laughs> I'm uh, so fascinated by this. This is amazing. Um, our stress and our pheromones are constantly in fluctuation. And so our dogs are going to look to for trends with them. They're going to start to identify when am I smelling my human emit this pheromone? What is the context that this pheromone is emitted? And so they're going to look for these trends to be able to make sense of it. Otherwise it's just meaningless data, right? Now, if every single time your dog's trigger comes around, you become more stressed and you emit this pheromone, your dog is going to start to correlate that smell with that trigger. So this does happen. We just don't know at what extent, but when we talk about like, oh, your tension is causing your dog to be more tense. I think we think of it in terms of energy and we give very abstract, like meaningless words attached to it. Like, oh, your energy is too tense or, you know, your fear is making your dog fearful. That doesn't mean anything. What we actually need to look at is more concrete. Like how is your behavior and how is the indirect consequences of that behavior, your cortisol, your breathing, how is that giving your dog data? And some of it you can control and some of it you cannot. I think that when it comes to the things that are, are within your power, the thing you have to realize is, especially if you have an anxious dog, not only are you reconditioning your dog's behavior, you have to recondition your own. So you're reconditioning your own habitual responses to your trigger. And I do call it at this point, it's your trigger just as much as it is your dog's trigger. Because when your dog's trigger comes into count in play, you immediately have a visceral response too. And you go, okay, here it is. And it's not as easy as just saying, well, don't tense up on the leash. It's not as easy as just saying, well, don't behave that way. That is a gross underestimation of the human condition. Instead, we need to realize that there is a deeper rooted trigger that is occurring when we see that event, when we see that stimulus, and we have to recondition our bodily functions when that event occurs. So that was, the, that was a very long answer, but I wanted to expand on it. No, that's some, that's exactly what I'm after. You know, what's funny is my dog, I mentioned that I have a, an anxious dog. She is female. And I don't think I've ever been more stressed than I've ever, than I am right now with two young children, three old dogs, and my husband traveling about 50% of the time. So now that I know that my cortisol levels directly impact hers, I feel like I have even more of a motivation to be more conscious of my self-care, maybe meditate more, bring my cortisol levels down. We do know what is effective for humans in that sense to help her. So thank you for that. That's something that I'll take with me forever with her because it really, I, I don't want my stress to make her more stressed for sure. And actually speaking about what pet parents can do for their pets, you mentioned in my guest prep forum, which I usually interview my guests before I interview them. I asked, you know, what's your pet peeve when it comes to pet parents? And you said that a lot of them overlook their pets, their dogs, mental health. Can you give me examples? Like maybe four examples of what you see on a regular basis that people are overlooking that is like a clear sign that something's going on? That's a great question. You ask really good questions. I'm really, I love it. So the one that I would say like in my personal life, cause I, I would say I have like my professional brain when I'm working with my clients and then I have like the general brain. Right. And they kind of overlap as kind of don't, but when I'm out and I'm just hanging out with Tyler at, at the cafe or whatever, and I see a dog that's just on the floor and he's demonstrating more subtle behaviors. He's hyper scanning. He's licking his lips, you know, maybe his breathing has escalated and I'm, I'm seeing these more subtle stress responses, but they're not as overt as what we think of like a misbehaved dog, like mm -hmm. lunging and barking and whatever. So the dog's not doing that, but he's definitely uncomfortable. And all the while the human is just like aloof and drinking their coffee and eating their whatever. And I don't think that it's intentional. I don't think that the guardian is like, I don't care that my dog is uncomfortable. It's just in a matter of unaware. It's just a matter of I've not educated to know that. 
Um, but also the result of their uneducation is that they don't see a problem. They see what they're looking at is a dog that's just sitting on the floor. What they are looking at is a dog that's just next to them. They're not seeing a misbehavior. And so therefore the dog must be fine. Just because you're not getting a quote unquote misbehavior doesn't mean the dog is fine. There's that, those two things are completely unrelated. At the same time, a dog can be perfectly fine and doing what you deem a misbehavior. So we have basically assumed that dogs have to do what we perceive is ideal. And if they are doing that, then therefore they must be fine and healthy. Mm. And those things are not the same. You can have a dog that's doing nothing that you want and be a perfectly healthy dog, right? From a mental health standpoint, from a physical health standpoint, um, and be a perfectly enriched happy animal. But what you see is that he's jumping up on your lap and that's what's bothering you. Or conversely, you could have a dog who is seriously having a hindered mental health. His exposure to the world is limited. He isn't able to encounter new things and know how to problem solve. He doesn't have a desire to play. He doesn't have a desire to even eat. Maybe his eating, he's just, well, he doesn't like the food or he's a picky eater, or maybe it's a matter of depression, right? So we look at these things and we undermine them and say that, well, that's just the way he is without asking, should it actually be that way? And that's overlooking mental health. Wow. That is so fascinating. Okay. Well, I have to take a break now because we have to go to a break, but I want to focus more on anxiety specifically as soon as we come back from these messages from our sponsors. Don't go anywhere. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez Arada, and today I'm having a fascinating conversation with Jenna Romano of The Dog Liaison. She has a YouTube channel. She is an expert in canine mental health, which as we discussed in the first part of the show was a new concept for me, but I personally am really sensitive to mental health. Jenna has a history, a family history of mental health disorders. So do I. So I'm very sensitive to that. And maybe that's why that term that you used called my attention. So next for this show, because I do want to play more games, I have a game called anxiety and I want you to spill the tea from Jenna brain, not Jenna working with clients brain about things that people say when it comes to canine anxiety and how you truly feel about these statements. Are you ready to play? Yes, please. This sounds so much fun. I'm down. Do not hold back. I want to hear what you would tell me if we were drinking at the bar. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Here we go. The first one is creating routines helped alleviate my dog's anxiety. Mm, uh, I would rephrase that to creating predictable positive outcomes cured your dog's anxiety. Ooh. So dogs are going to lean towards predictability and more specifically predictability towards an outcome that they desire, not necessarily routine. Oh, okay. Very good. My groomer diagnosed my dog with anxiety. The only person who can diagnose anything is your vet. <laughs> a well-trained and cared for dog doesn't need medication. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Behavior medication has nothing to do with obedience and everything to do with helping the dog be able to function operationally inside the way he, the way he deserves <laughs> to be functionally operating. It is 
in many cases, the most humane thing you can do is to help an animal like that. I love that because a lot of people have a lot a hard time accepting doggy Prozac or whatever it is that the vet wants to give and they have all these reasons for it. Here's the next one. My dog was like a zombie when I tried doggy Prozac. So just because one medication work doesn't mean none of the medications work. And it also means you need to go have a conversation with your veterinarian, not Reddit, not TikTok, not <laughs> Instagram, not even me. Then that's a conversation with your veterinarian. Yes, because like I learned in one of your videos, I watched a lot of them today and yesterday. Um, one of them says that the dosage matters too. So just because they were a zombie on that dose that they started with doesn't mean, and honestly, for anybody who's ever been on any SSRI, like for humans, that is the case with humans as well. It takes a long time to figure out what the right dosage is. Sometimes you have to work your way up to maybe some more than you're, you thought you needed to begin with. There's the same process for dogs because they can't even tell us how they feel. It's even harder. One of the things I would say, especially if you're getting your prescriptions from a general practicing veterinarian, as opposed to like a behavior veterinarian, is that most of the dogs who need behavior medication are going to require some trial and error with medication. If your dog really does just get a home run right out of the get-go with the very first medication on the very, very first dosage, and it's like the best thing that's ever happened, you either have the most expert veterinarian who can read dogs' brains, or we need to ask whether or not, like how much of the training protocol can come into play and support more. You know what I mean? Maybe they were like borderline where they just needed a tiny bit, figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. Most, most of our anxious dogs are going to need a couple of trial in there. Yeah. That makes sense. I feel like everybody I know that's ever been on an SSRI has also been like, which one should I try? And this one is better. And you do your research. And I, I'm in a ton of like natural mom groups where people are like, I don't want to do that. And everybody talks about their dosage and it's so varied. Yep. And depending on what the diagnosis is, it's going to be different. Like OCD has higher dosage yep. than general anxiety. And the same is going to apply for dogs, I'm sure, because it's not yep. the way we metabolize medicine is just so different for everybody. It's no yep. different for dogs. Exactly right. I use canine pheromones and leave relaxing music on for my dog to keep her anxiety free. To keep her anxiety free. <laughs> um, so that's fine. And if you have reliable data that is proving that those pheromones are objectively helping your dog, then I'm all on board. But you need to be aware that the placebo effect is strongly in play with these things. And that's why it's important that we have data. We're not just going off of our intuition. I'm a very big proponent that if your behavior consultant, your coach or trainer, whoever is not making you create data and create logs to reflect, they're not the coach for you. They don't understand how science works. Oh, interesting. I love it. There's the, the little nerdiness coming out. We need data, data yes. guys. I prefer my dog be a little stressed rather than have them be on anxiety medication. I guess my follow-up to that would be how much is a little stress, right? Like, yeah, that would be my follow-up question is like, are we underestimating how much stress the dog is under? Because I do think you can't have a stress-free life. And any behavior consultant who, or trainer or coach who is suggesting that you create a stress-free life for your dog is asking you to create the impossible. So a little bit of stress makes sense. That gets us to a problem-solving state that gets us possibly to learning. But also we need to be aware that we may be underestimating the amount of stress that the dog's under. So when it comes to physical ailments, pain specifically, dogs are really resilient and they hide it a lot. Do you find that that happens with anxiety as well? Absolutely. So one of the inherent problems that any ethical trainer will tell you is that what we see externally is not a reliable indicator of what's happening internally. Mm -hmm. And so that works both ways. Whether we see a dog laying down quiet in the corner, that's unreliable. And conversely, a dog who is lunging and barking and potentially even biting may also be unreliable. So that's one of the reasons why data is so important because you want to look for trends, right? I love taking videos of, of training sessions, of, vid of videos of dogs. I'm definitely a proponent of training videos, but 
one of the inherent problems with them is like, if so I get people who will, and please don't do this, but I get people who will send me DMS with videos of their dogs and say, this just happened. What does this mean? I would be completely unprofessional, completely unethical to try to interpret that. I have absolutely no context. I'm getting one 25 second glimpse at your dog without anything else. And even if you wrote me three paragraphs, that's still not nearly enough data for what I would need to be able to make an assertion about what's going on here, because what's happening externally is not a reliable indicator of what's happening internally. And so with anxiety, especially like we have a dog in the RP right now who like he has spent the last several years of his life, just basically living inside his own home. And he will go out to his backyard, but he won't go out his front door. And even if he does go out his front door, he will only go outside when it's pitch dark out. And only sometimes it's not even consistent. He won't go out if it's daylight. And for them, they had gone several years being okay with just having him live inside the house and in the backyard. And that was sufficient for them. But once they started becoming more educated and finding my YouTube channel and finding my Instagram, once they became more educated, they realized, you know, we have really been undermining his ability and just because he's not barking and just because he's not lunging and just because he's not shaking in the corner doesn't mean that his anxiety is really limiting his exposure to the world and what's available to him in his life. And so this is, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about before, which is like undermining mental health. Right. And, and really acknowledging that just because your dog has behaved doesn't mean that he doesn't need support and doesn't mean that you don't owe it to him to give him that support. That's fascinating. That's so good to know. A last question for this uh, anxiety game. My dog was anxious, but I was alpha and I showed him he had nothing to be anxious about. So I would first just say that the alpha logic is a complete myth that is not science backed. There is such thing as dominance and submission in the scientific literature. The dogs are not aware that it exists. It is a phenomenon that we have created for our own human brains. It is not something that the dogs deliberately create and assert. And so when we say that we need to assert our dominance over a dog, we are working off the, the lie that the dogs are aware of dominance and they're not. That is not something that they have within their social capacity. So the biggest problem that I would say from a science-backed perspective is that yes, dominance and submission are words that we use in the scientific literature. Yes, those words exist. No, the dogs do not know that they exist. No, the dogs do not know about the phenomenon and the interpretation within the alpha pack training method is not a science backed interpretation. Okay. Okay. Understood. The whole alpha, I alphaed him into, into not being anxious. It's like, come on guy, you did not do that. <laughs> All right. So very good. Awesome job. That is why I play games because I learn from the games. So just like in humans, I don't think we know what truly causes anxiety. Do we have mm -hmm. an idea of what causes anxiety in dogs? Maybe like the top reasons. Yep. So most of our hypothesis leans from separation anxiety. So obviously there are a myriad of different anxiety disorders. Most of them are related in phobias. We really do think that there is a, there's a mixture of trauma and a mixture of genetics and a mixture of epigenetics. So let me break this down. One of the things that we understand about our evolution with animals is that we have evolved to force them effectively to rely on us and to need our companionship, right? Throughout the last 14,000s of years, we have asked them to rely on us for so many resources that it makes sense that they would then become attached to us. Like it's no, no brainer from an evolutionary standpoint that they would start to develop hyper attachment to us. So that's one of the reasons why we think that separation anxiety is a, in many cases, an involved genetic basis. But then there's this cool thing called epigenetics, which is basically trauma-induced genetics. And what that basically means is that if I can give like, this is kind of a one-off example that has nothing to do with dogs, but I really do see that it gives the picture accurately. Imagine if you are walking into the, a big forest with your dog and you encounter a bear, right? And by some miracle, you and your dog both survive the bear attack, right? Both of you have now had such a traumatic event that your genetics are now going to have an yeah. induced fear to bears, right? And so by that logic, if you went and bred that dog, 
in theory, his puppies could also have this unreasonable fear of bears. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this is a phenomenon that exists and and Mm -hmm. it's not unique to dogs. This is unique to anybody. This is a very known epigenetic factor. And so we have found that this can happen with things like fear of humans or fear of other dogs, right? It would make sense that there could be an epigenetic basis there in some capacity. But then you also think about it from just a pure like evolution perspective. There are many breeds who are bred to have stranger danger. Like they're, they're bred to be concerned about people they don't know or dogs they don't know, like that's their job. So from that perspective, there's a genetic basis there that they would have fear for that. And so we do know that there are distinct genetic markers for different forms of aggression. Stranger directed has its own marker. Owner directed has its own marker. Dog dog directed has its own marker. It's not like aggression in and of itself is its own DNA marker. They each have their own little design, if you will. Right. Right. So there's a genetic basis, there's an epigenetic basis, and then there's this trauma induced learning experience. You can think of this as like a learning thing. Right. And in this case, a dog has learned through life experience that something is negative or something is bad or something is concerning. Right. And when this occurs, it can happen. Sometimes we are very aware that it happens. Like it was a single event learning. My dog got attacked by another dog. My dog had this bad experience at the vet, whatever, like we can point to a single event that changed everything. But then in other cases, it's actually much more vague. And it's actually a series of events that have reinforced this fear, which is to say that, or I should clarify, it's a reinforce that this is fearful, right? Which is to say that the dog has gone through several experiences and every single time the experience has been an undesired outcome. And so therefore the logical conclusion is that this is an undesired thing and I should be afraid of it. So all that to say, sometimes that's what those learning experiences are within the guardian's control. And sometimes they aren't more often than not, at least with the dog guardians that I work with more often than not, it's not in the guardian's control. And you could be the world's greatest guardian on the planet. You could do everything. The books tell you, you could do all, you could do 12 years of research before you get your first puppy and still end up with a puppy that has anxiety. And this is something that I get very passionate about because I see on TikTok, I see on Instagram, I see on everything that we are blaming guardians for their dog's Mm -hmm. behavior. And that is a complete underestimation of the significance of anxiety and the root of anxious behavior. Absolutely. For sure. And I mean, yes, you can't blame one thing, probably. I'm sure it's so many and we're all very complex beings or humans and canines alike. So one of your videos and correct me if I've misunderstood or misinterpreted it, but you explained that anxiety is a spectrum where like fear is like a fear response to a trigger that's normal and biologically expected for all species. And then there's anxiety, which is kind of like, there's no trigger, but you're still fearful. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I was curious if you think that just because of the way that dogs don't understand our world, Mm -hmm. do you find that like most dogs live somewhere in the middle? Like, do we even have any dogs that just live in like fear only responding to a trigger? Or are they always Mm. kind of a little bit out of sorts, even if it's, you know, a healthier level of of anxiety? Okay, this is a great question. So first, when we're talking about anxiety, what really is anxiety is a preparation for some sort of event. So it's either a preparation for an undesired event, which is like they see what's coming around the corner and they don't like that what's coming, or it's a preparation for an unknown. They literally don't know what to predict out of this, right? It's like, I'm predicting that this is unfamiliar territory. So either way, there's some sort of anticipation that is occurring, right? It's an anticipatory event. That's one of the reasons why anxiety and fear get linked very often, but they don't actually have to be fear-based. It doesn't have to be fear-based. Anxiety could just be that I'm anticipating that something's going to occur that I don't like. Whether or not I'm afraid of it is irrelevant. I, I just It's undesired, right? Got it. So it is a very visceral experience. We know the heart rate goes up. We know the blood gets pumped. We know those legs especially get pumped with blood and they're ready to respond. It's a very like, there's a lot of 
oxygen going. Like it's a very physiological experience, mm -hmm. anxiety, right? In the same way that fear is. And so can any dog experience anxiety? Yes. In the same way that any human can have anxiety around something, right? Can any dog experience fear? Yes. Can in the same way that anybody can experience fear. So how we really delineate between the quote unquote normal dogs and the quote unquote anxious dogs. How we would delineate between that is the frequency of that anxiety. And right. more than that, is it proportionate to what the event is calling for? Right? right. So for example, if your dog only gets hyper stressed or hyper anxious when he's going into the vet, and that is the only context that you see it, but then you can also tell me that, well, he had a really traumatic experience when he was 12 weeks old at the vet. Well, that makes sense. Like he had a single event and now he's anticipating that when he goes into that vet, something bad's going to happen. And therefore it's a contextualized anxiety. Would I personally call that an anxious dog? I don't know if I'd categorize it like that. I think I would just say that dog is experiencing anxiety like any other dog could. Right. Right. But like for me, when I'm really thinking about what clients I'll work with, because I only work with dogs facing a certain degree of anxiety. When I'm thinking about me, I'm thinking, what is the frequency that the dog is experiencing this accelerated visceral experience? How often is his body going through this experience? And is that fair to the animal to go through it that frequently? Right, 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 right. For sure. You also mentioned in one of your videos that anxiety is like a lifelong thing. It doesn't just mm -hmm. go away. So can you, in humans, and I always put things in human perspective so that I can understand it better. In humans, you have situations like adjustment disorders where people have like postpartum anxiety, which I personally experienced after both of my births, but eventually that kind of subsides with hormone levels leveling out and all that stuff. And then there's like people who are anxious, social anxiety that they have their whole lives. Does that apply to dogs or what we're seeing is usually like a dog that's anxious is basically going to be anxious their whole life. So the answer is kind of yes and no. First and foremost, the science on, on anxious dogs is not as like understanding as the humans. So like in the classification that you're like, well, this would be like a limited thing. And then this would be like an extended thing. We don't have the science on that with dogs. Got so it. there's definitely a gap of knowledge on our end for that, but through observations. And so we're basically we're working off of a working hypothesis is what this is through observations. We can, I, we know that dogs experience PTSD. We know that the more serious the trigger is, the harder it is for them to work through. And like, even it, I was talking to just this past weekend, I was talking to one of my friends who is a therapist. We, we work in the same business entrepreneurial world. And that's how we know each other. I came to her and I said, you know, I would, I really like your input on something. I told her, I don't know exactly which word to use when I'm talking about my program for anxiety. I said, I don't know if I should use resolve or if I should use work through, or if I should use treat, because in some cases we are resolving the anxiety. And then in other cases, we're not resolving it, right? In other cases, it's a matter of this is going to be something that in some capacity, the dog encounters off and on, and we need to make sure that we have coping strategies, management in place to be able to work through that anxiety when it occurs. And so I really personally struggle with this word. Do I use resolve or do I use you know, manage. And she told me that in the human therapist world, that's one of the reasons why they use management. They use the word management to say that we're going to manage the individual's anxiety. Unfortunately, in the dog training world, management has been kind of claimed as sort of a temporary relief. And instead mm -hmm. of it being like a long-term thing, it's meant to be like a temporary pause. And so the connotation has kind of been screwed with a little bit there. Yeah. So all that to say, you know, there are definitely like with separation anxiety, you can get to the point where you're leaving your dog eight hours a day. So you can go to work. That's possible. You also need to understand that, especially if your dog has an extensive rate of separation anxiety, you are highly susceptible to a resurgence later in life, right? If, if the dog has a particularly traumatic event, if someone passes, if they move, whatever, if there's some sort of abrupt transition in their life, they're susceptible to a resurgence. And we just know that about separation anxiety. It is what it is with reactivity. We have to accept that you can make a lot of growth with one trigger in one context under one circumstance. And that does not necessarily mean that you can generalize it to a billion and other circumstances as easily, mm -hmm. you know? So you have to really be thoughtful about 
what are my goals for my dog and what am I willing to put work into to desensitize and what am I okay just implementing a temporary relief or avoidance method? Management. Management. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I've always thought of management as almost like a physical barrier or like an acceptance of reality Mm -hmm. as uh, of the pet as is. Sometimes management just means I will accept you as you are with this thing that I don't like and we will work around it kind of. So I understand that management has like a connotation that's different specifically in dog training. Yeah. I really love that. I think I could do an entire episode just talking about the word management because, and that's a great idea. I might have to, because there's so many lenses to look through it and it's going to mean something different to every single guardian, to every single dog. And it's not a matter of like, let's undermine management and say that it's not necessary or that we it's less effective than a training protocol right but it's also not let's glorify it and say that this is the end game and you just have to be resolute in having an anxious dog there's still journey to go on right so yeah i completely agree management is a tricky little word it is it is well tell us how can our audience learn more about you and reach out to you and learn about your program that you offer for anxious dogs yes so first and foremost i welcome you to check out all of my socials at dog underscore liaison on instagram youtube.com backslash dog liaison I know liaison is a tricky word. I'm aware of that. So if you just go to getacomdog.com backslash socials, all of my links are on there as well. And so you can get easy access to all of my social medias. I'm not sure when this episode will air, but I do have low key have a secret project that's coming up at the end of December. So you're going to want to make sure that you are following me so that you get to see when that secret project gets dropped. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be a free content. So that's exciting. We'll definitely be before the end of December. So yeah, perfect. Yes. So make sure you guys are following me on my socials and I'm assuming uh, this is uploaded on YouTube in the description box. You can all send you my links as well. And my signature program is the Recovering Rover Program for Dog Anxiety. It is a six-month comprehensive program to help you work through your dog's anxiety. We only accept clients that are working through multiple anxiety-related disorders at once. So if your dog only has separation anxiety, then they wouldn't be a qualified candidate. And if your dog is only reactive to one trigger at a time, that would not make them a candidate either. However, if your dog is facing multiple triggers, multiple anxiety inducing events in a given day, then I definitely welcome you to check out the recovering Rover program. And this is by application only. So it's not an open enrollment, um, but you can go to getacomdoc.com to learn more about the RFP. That is so awesome. I am so excited that you came on the show today. I'm so happy that I found you. And I just want to propose a toast to you because canine mental health is truly important. It's not propaganda. It is so important. And I know that while we may not feel the uh, benefits of it, the, the dogs do. And so cheers to you for that. Thank you. I so appreciative. <laughs> I also want to propose a toast to my executive producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible and to our viewers on YouTube and our listeners on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for spending your time with us. Here's to a life covered in pet hair because there's no better way to live. Cheers. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for everything. I'm super excited. I know that I was boring with my water, but next podcast is going down. I promise we'll be better prepared. Next time we're going to have a whole podcast all about management. Let's do it. I'm so down. I all think right. that's, a, that's, that's a three hour topic right there. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, we will figure it out. So if you want to learn more about Covered in Pet Hair, please visit CoveredInPetHair.com or PetLifeRadio.com. Thank you for watching and we'll see you next time. Let's Talk Pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.